Jen Cooper, the keeper here, ready for the next episode of the Mix Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. This is episode number 318. And with that number, we give a shout out to Chicago Red Stars defender, Tierna Davidson. She has played 1,318 minutes across all NWSL competitions since she joined the league in 2019. Tierna was the first player to come through the draft having left college early. Uh, So the rule change that allowed players to leave college, join the NWSL through the draft without having exhausted their NCAA eligibility, we sometimes call the Davidson rule. And speaking of Chicago Red Stars, my first chat today is with Claire Watkins, who covers the Chicago Red Stars for Southside Trap Podcast, and also she writes a lot for EqualizerSoccer.com. Claire and I talked about the new investor group for Chicago, the Challenge Cup schedule, roster changes, what what 2021 is going to look like for the Red Stars. And then I spoke with Jason Anderson, who covers mostly Washington Spirit for both the Plex Weather Podcast and also BlackAndRedUnited.com. The Spirit, too, have new investors on board, um, some new players through the draft, uh, different venue situations. They're playing again at Segra Field for Challenge Cup, but will also plan to have some games at Audi Field later this year. And between those two chats, a Gensplainer segment, of course. This week's Gensplainer segment is about the 2021 Challenge Cup format and standings, tiebreakers, and all the information you need to know about the tournament that kicks off April 9th. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Claire Watkins, Equalizer Soccer contributor and co-host of the Southside Trap podcast. And of course, that is based in Chicago for those that might not make that connection. Claire, of course, you're based in Chicago. And that's why I wanted to talk to you today to talk about Chicago suddenly having a much larger uh, ownership group. Very exciting. Very exciting. Long awaited, right? This is something that I think we've been talking about, you know, in terms of Chicago for for a long time. And it finally happened. Now, do you think it's um, a knee jerk response to Angel City or is this something that Arnim Whistler, you know, the original owner, and he's been funding this team since the WPS days. So what, like more than a decade, um, you know, was this something he's been planning maybe longer than that? I do think that it's something that has been, I think that finding minority ownership has been part of the plan for a long time. Um, Especially Arnim has said over the couple of years, you know, he's never gotten into specifics, but he has said multiple times that um, probably the era of the single independent owner has probably passed for the league, unless it's someone with like a lot, a lot of money. Um, Right. But I think maybe the thing that is more recent is if he was looking for one or two people to buy in to to make the operation a little bit more robust, I think the Angel City influence might be, okay, well, why not eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 people? And then you figure out a different tier structure of what's our minimum buy-in, what tiers are we looking at in terms of um, percentages and that sort of thing. And so I think that I think that the plan was always to diversify the ownership group, but the way that we saw it come in, I do think was influenced by Angel City with the idea of possibly a lower membership tier. 
And I think it's an important point, uh, you know, that that he's said about we're past the point of a, a, a single owner, um, unless you've got the seriously deep pockets of like, you know, a Phil Anschutz or the Hunt family, something like that, uh, you know, from MLS. Um, and I like that we're seeing this move towards local ownership, right? Not, not that the teams aren't already owned locally, but pulling in more members who not just have a vested interest in, in women's soccer, but really have deep connections to, to the city. I mean, looking at the the Chicago investor list, it's clear. It's like they are names that a lot of Chicago people, you know, should know, right? And some of them have, uh, you know, broader, um, broader exposure, you know, like, uh, you know, the what Kendall coin show field. I didn't know the name, but I was like, Ooh, Olympic gold medal hockey player, you know, that. Right. And I, and I like the idea, like regardless of uh, an individual's investment level, you know, that it's easy for them to help support the team and promote the team and tweet about it and go to games and talk to people about it and just, you know, add it to their daily lives. Right. And, and I think, anything that the leagues or the club, the league or the clubs do that gets more people on a daily basis, just talking women's soccer, right. That, that it's like just building it into their lives is, is yeah, huge. I think, yeah, I think there are like a couple, there are a couple of layers to this that I, I find interesting. One being, you know, as we said, <clears throat> I think, I do think that I don't want to overlook the actual capital element of this. I do think that the money is part of the important part, though we like yeah. to talk names and talk uh, talk promotion and marketing and that sort of thing. But I do think from Chicago, from Chicago's end, you know, Chicago has always done really well being very smart, um, knowing the NWSL really, really well, figuring out how to put together a winning environment um, without some of the frills that we've seen at other clubs. And that's become part of their identity. Uh, and I think the, the hope now is that you can maintain that identity, that hard walk, hardworking blue collar identity, while also having nice things and supporting <laughs> your players the way they need to be supported. Why not both? Um, but yeah, I totally agree. I think the local element is really important too, because if you think about sort of the DNA of Chicago as a club, they have a lot of Chicagoland players, right? And, and Rory Danes, you know, yes. the Chicagoland. Um, he's very prominent in the Chicagoland area, even outside of coaching. So um, I think that it just takes that idea of this is an area of the country that has a lot of really smart, hardworking, capable people. And we want to build from that. And we don't actually need to go outside of that community to find people who are going to help the club, both like, as you said, in terms of profile, but even just in terms of wanting to help see the club succeed. And as you mentioned, so many players from the area, we've seen, you know, so many girls out of Eclipse get drafted into the league, a lot of them into Chicago and, and all around. And also, you know, like seen players drafted out of Northwestern for the first time a couple mm-hmm. years back, you know, that kind of like just, you know, double down on that. Hey, this is Chicago land. Right. The, and, and embracing yeah. that, you know, MKOT for my kind of town and, and, yep. the, and the Jersey. So it's, it's really building that identity. But I also want to go back to, to, to your good point about, you know, we can't overlook uh, the capital, the money that people are bringing into this because 
you know, one of the narratives that used to really frustrate me uh, with WPS and also with NWSL was, hey, we're not wasting money like the WSA did. You know, the first league mm-hmm. lasted three years and people say, oh, they burned through 100 million. It's like, well, that's an easy number to throw out there. But if you looked at MLS in its first three years, it probably burned through a billion, right? Sure. But we just don't hear that number because it's because it's still around. And I feel like we're finally turning the corner um, of, hey, yeah, you do have to spend money on things. There's only so cheap. There's only so much you can cut your costs, right? Like, And, and as we've seen, like NWSL really pushed that limit in terms of what the minimum salaries were those first few years right. and having amateur replacement players who were completely unpaid and, you know, not having year round housing. So I feel like um, this is this new group of investors is kind of helping with that, both at, you know, LL rain, you know, having Olympic group come in angel city, you know, James Harden at Houston, Washington spirit, you know, that it's like, Hey, if you're going to do this, things actually cost a certain amount of money. You just can't, barely run a team and hope that people come to games. There has to be marketing. There has to be investment in infrastructure, right? There And there's all those behind the scenes costs that, you know, you and I never have to think about, but you know, there's, you know, insurance and medical and travel and, you know, all kinds of little things, right? And then you think of what yeah. last year did to, to the league and, and these clubs because of COVID. I mean, obviously we had a fantastic challenge cup, but you think, they lost all that revenue of people coming to games, people buying concessions. So it's it's just, it's a really big time. And, and I don't think we'd be able to be making this move without this additional investment into women's soccer. And I love that it's so many people from so many different kinds of businesses that are getting involved. It's not just former athletes and it's not just former right. soccer players, right? We've got former NFL, we've got former hockey, um, we've got women investing, mm-hmm. right? And you've yeah. even got like <laughs> Naomi Osaka, like, wow. I love the story mm-hmm. where you know she said that Billie Jean King calling her going, well, you know, you need to invest. You need to get involved. This is something you can do. And I, I like that mindset of like, hey, I can actually do something about it, you know? So it's... Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the things that I think are really encouraging too, um, and I'm sure you can speak to this since, you know, having seen previous leagues and the league from its inception, is I think that there was this idea that that this kind of raising of capital, this taking the league to the next level might not be possible without some team sales selling the team to somebody else or mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. aligning very closely with MLS or really uh, a stark change. And maybe we saw something maybe similar to that, though Bill Primore is obviously still steering the ship in, in Seattle and Tacoma. But um, I think what the Angel City model has opened up is this ability for these owners who, who still feel like they're probably the best stewards for the club just because they've been there for a long time and they understand the space yes. to maintain that while also still raising the money that they, that they need. And I think that that's very encouraging. And like you said, what that has resulted in is <clears throat> instead of these, these owners selling their teams to other owners of a similar demographic who are even richer than them, it's mm-hmm. actually diversifying the ownership group entirely. So I think that all of that stuff is very positive. 
Yeah, it's it's a great blend of someone like Arnhem, who's been, you know, knee deep in women's soccer for a long time with people who haven't been, but are bringing new ideas, new energy, new commitment. Um, I, you know, I feel like finally the league is getting to take advantage of a World Cup win in a way that they didn't after 2015. They were completely not poised yeah. to take advantage of that trophy. And, you know, they should feel very lucky that the U.S. women pulled off a win again you know, in, in 2019, um, cause that momentum has been going, even with the Olympics being postponed and even with, um, you know, the, the shutdown last year, in, in some ways, I, I think you could even argue that it worked in the NWL, NWSL's favor that they were able to come back. They were the first league back and there was so little sports on TV that they were getting way more eyes, um, on them than they had before. Uh, I was, I looked right after she believes uh, soccer America release. Okay. Here's the top 10 viewed games of the U S women since the world cup. So not, not including the world cup, but since the world cup, the CBS final and the CBS opener on for challenge cup were both higher than any of those games, which blew me away. Like, I'm like, wait, even like the first victory tour game. Yeah. You know, but but that tells you like how much people were so hungry for soccer, and and I love right. that that because NWSL is still a little bit more nimble than something like the MLS or the NBA, right? Where you've got fewer owners and fewer players, right? That they could come back as as quickly as they did, and and now having a template for that, like I, I feel pretty confident going into to this Challenge Cup and this yeah. season that the league has so much experience under its belt in just such a short time, having done not only the cup, but the fall series and all the testing, mm-hmm. right. And the testing combined with the travel that it's like, they know what they're doing, you know, um, in a way that yeah. I don't think I would have felt that way several years <laughs> back. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I mean, 2020 was definitely an amazing thing to witness. And I definitely have had my fair share of, of criticism for, for the league in the past in terms of what they've been able to anticipate and do. Um, but I, I completely agree. And I think that because last year was so unprecedented that we had so many unprecedented moments in, in society and in sports. And the fact that, you know, every time you had someone listing successful bubbles or listing firsts or whatever, that the NWSL was in that conversation. And if they weren't, people made them, <laughs> made them aware of that and let them know. <laughs> I know. And I think, and I think that that has been, that's been only good. I think that, I mean, I'm sure you've seen, on social media, um, the gains that the NWSL has made. And I'm sure that is indicative of people spending a lot of time online in the last year, but people really are getting engaged in that conversation. And you and I both know how engaged women soccer fans are, but we've, we've seen just kind of that discovery grow and grow. And so that number is, is larger and they're equally engaged. And I think one other thing I kind of wanted to mention about, about the ownership group. Um, and I think this is, I, I don't know the, the Washington situation as well, but, I know that one of the things that they talked about in Chicago um, is that you had people who either had ambitions towards ownership or ambitions towards learning more about the executive side of things. And the NWSL became an entry point for that. Uh, Sarah yes. Spain talked about how she now gets to sit at the ownership table and learn. Um, and I think that that is an important aspect as well. Kendall Coyne Schofield has talked about how she wants to learn from this NWSL experience to bring that to women's hockey, which is a little bit further behind. Um, right. And I think that that is cool too, because 
NWSL teams, as we know, are not as expensive to become a part of as, as many other many other sports. And it's new enough and I think is trying very hard not to be this exclusive club or trying to shut people out. It's a lot of the more the merrier still. And I think that we're seeing that across a lot of lines from front office all the way down to fans. Um, and I think that that is why we're seeing out of a year which could have been the death of the league. Right. Um, we're actually seeing this momentum move that is beyond I certainly anything I've ever seen, I think. Um, and my expectations are really high for this year. I think it can be very cool. And especially that, you know, looks like the Olympics will, will still happen. And even though the league isn't breaking for the Olympics, I like I don't think that's going to be an issue because since the Olympics are in Japan, like the timing, it's not going to conflict directly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You know, with the time, but I do want to go back to your point about social media because I think that's such a huge point. Because I remember years ago um, noticing, you know, in the very early years of Twitter, basically at the first year of Twitter, WPS, you know, that they were into their second season, they had two hundred and fifty thousand followers. Right? right? They were an early adopter, thanks to Amanda Vandervoort, um, and at the same time. MLS, who had been around for nearly 15 years and was not as dependent on, you know, what's what free promotion can we find, had 20,000 followers. Hmm. Right. So more than tenfold. And that number stuck in my head. And so I looked last year and I was like, oh, my God, NWSL is only at 110K. And that really, that really surprised me because I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. we had these World Cups. And it's like, but right. that tells you that there wasn't, a, there wasn't someone at the office, there wasn't an infrastructure that was working to build that. Now, flash forward a year, and NWSL is almost at 220K, right? So they've mm-hmm. doubled in about a year. Now, imagine right. what if there was more infrastructure behind that trying to do something, right? Like, like you look at Man United Women and they're over a million, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Now, obviously, that, right. that's a big brand that has other powerful ways to get people to follow them. But that's one yeah. of the things that, that does give me hope that I look at the followers and like, yes, that's more like it. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, you even think about what the Orlando Pride was able to achieve over last year's Challenge Cup, despite not even participating in it at all. Um, right. It does. It just it just takes. And this is, again, where, where diversifying ownership is good. You know, some of the people that Chicago brought in are heads of communications companies or people who work in digital media or digital marketing, um, television and film production. You have people who understand what it takes to succeed both online and in person. And I do think that that expertise is important because I think what we have seen in the past is the league work very hard simply to sustain existence, right? Play the mm-hmm. game, make mm-hmm. it to the stadium Just get on through. time, that sort Just of thing. Just get through, yes. yeah. Right. And, and so when, you, but because this is an exciting thing that people want to be a part of, um, taking it to that next level just because you have people around you who know how to do that. I think that that is huge and it's going to consistently make the league feel more professional, feel more legitimate. You know, you have, it's not my favorite conversation, but that conversation of what's the best league in the world. And like you said, if you have Manchester United women who are killing it on social media, that affects people's perceptions of things. Um, right. And so I, I think that it's it's all promising. I think we're going to have to see how much of that actually plays out throughout the next year. But um, 
definitely, you know, Lisa Baird loves to say not only survive, but thrive. Um, and I would say they definitely survived. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing some some thriving um, in the upcoming season, I think. Yeah. So now we're looking at, uh, you know, we're a month away from kickoff of the second NWSL Challenge Cup. And you think, you know, this didn't even exist in anybody's brain this time last year. Right. right. Um, so one that they came up with that idea last year and were able to pull it off, even with Orlando having to pull out of the tournament at the last minute and, you know, all those players and coaches and staff suffering through, you know, five weeks of their own special quarantine in, in Utah. Uh, you know, it was, it, it was a hit and, you know, all of us watching and even the, the coaches and players were like, we need to do this again. So I love that, NWSL reacted to that and even announced, not not now, but announced last fall, hey, we're doing the Challenge Cup again, and that will be the precursor to the regular season. So just mm-hmm. this week, Claire, we got the schedule for the Challenge Cup. We, we already knew the format would be two groups of five teams. You play everybody in your group. Winner of each group meets in the final. Um, everybody playing two home games, two away games, and it, you know it'll be one of the two finalists obviously hosting the final. I love that this is a little bit more traditional soccer and that your standings, you'll only be ranked against teams that you played, right? Um, Because Challenge Cup last summer was originally going to be, you know, nine teams. They couldn't really do even groups. And then even with Orlando pulling out the last minute, well, they were trying to maximize the number of games they were getting. So, you know, it didn't lend itself to groups, right? So it was a single table and it was kind of weird because obviously everybody advanced to the quarterfinals. So I like this format that you've got two groups of five. You get four games. Nobody has a really compressed schedule. Everybody gets some home games. Of course, some teams will have fans, some some won't. Um, but it's straight to the final, right? Like there, there's no, yeah. oh, we got second in our group. You have to win your right. group. So what are your thoughts like on the format, but also, you know, when, when you saw the schedule, cause they're, they're kicking off the yeah. tournament with rematch of the final Houston versus Chicago. Yeah. So, well, first of all, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. Um, and I, and I know that it's a compromise to do everything in home markets, but I also know that that is very much what players and coaches wanted. So I feel, you know, secure in that knowledge. And I right. think that the NWSL's protocols have held pretty well, even through the rounds of testing, obviously that we've seen over the last month and a half ish. Um, it's been, it's all been pretty good. Um, yeah, I like the format. I like, that it is outside of if they had, if they had turned this into more of an open cup feel where they were doing it interspersed throughout the season I understand maybe wanting a little bit more pomp and circumstance for the the later stages but for it is as it is what it is I mean we're also seeing a lot of weeknight games a lot of games in quick succession they're really trying to wrap this up in the course of a month um, so I'm okay I'm okay with. <laughs> Two groups, one final, wonderful. It's going to be a great time. And then the real work kind of begins a little bit. Um, and I also, you know, from a Chicago perspective, and I know this is true for Houston as well, I had heard, I think it was um, Steve Goff at the Washington Post who had reported a little while back this idea of the two different divisions. Um, and the Western division is kind of tough because it's huge. And if, if you're looking at some of the heavy hitters, right, it has the two of the finalists from the Challenge Cup last year. It has Portland, who won, who, you know, quote unquote, won the fall series and also have added a lot of pieces in the offseason since. I think right. the Western Division is going to be quite tough. Um, 
And even within that, I'm like, great, you either win or you don't, and you get to go to the big show or you don't. And then maybe that fuels your fire for, for the regular season a little bit. But um, the other thing, looking at that schedule is, right, we have this, we have this rematch of the Challenge Cup final. Um, but if you look at those two teams, because of the international break, it's going to be two very different. Yes. Chicago, and especially Houston. Houston's going to get really kind of annihilated by the, you know, no Canadians, no Rachel Daly, probably, um, you know, they have probably no Mewis, probably no Campbell. Team, right? yeah. Exactly. They have, they have players going in with the Americans as well now too. And I'm just like, well, we're going to probably actually, this will be a great preview of, of what we might see during the Olympics, um, which I'm hopeful with the long preseason will be high quality soccer, no matter what I think. And I'm okay with this being in in a sense a preseason tournament, right? Like we're not we're not at the point yet where this could be contested like the FA Cup where it's stretched over the course of a season, right? Like this is this was kind of a I think a security net, right? It allowed the the league right. to push back the start of the regular season another month, you know, because hey, when they made this decision in November, who knows what's gonna happen because of COVID, right? Right. Um I also like that it gives teams um, some real preseason competition. And I don't mean to diminish the the value of the games, but I mean that like playing college teams in preseason and of course scrimmaging right. yourself, it's not going to do it for these teams, right? Like to actually get to right. play another NWSL yeah. team. Um, as we've seen, you know, Roy Dames has said in the past that, you know, they got so much out of playing in that Portland preseason tournament, right. Than just playing right. local college teams. Um, I like that. It's also a way for the clubs to maybe promote their, promote their club to fans that, you know, aren't sure yet if they want to commit to season tickets, right. Just like, Hey, just come to right. this one game. Like, Oh wow. Right. This was, you know, this was really cool. And, and that there's, but there's something at stake, right. It's not, right. it's not the, the long 24 game, regular season and and it is like you said especially for Chicago and Houston that first game it's a test run of what that Olympic gap is going to be so the Olympics are basically what July 22nd August 9th something like that Mm -hmm. and I'm sure the U.S. players will depart probably mid-June right Mm -hmm. um and so you know, it's like, that's a good test for the teams to, to like, Hey, where's my depth? Um, and obviously there's a roster deadline for cup. I would assume there's a whole separate one for the regular season. So it's also in the way that the fall series was a a little bit of a tryout for that player on the bubble. Right. Right. Show, show me that I should keep you around as a training player and then you can be an NTR replacement or show me that you deserve one of the, the 26 spots, right? Like, like right. I, I really enjoyed watching the fall series last year because it was much more open yeah. t- type of yeah. games, right? We had much more scoring and you're like, wow, I had no idea Sarah Lubert was that good. And you're like, who's Sarah right. Lubert? Well, you should know who she is now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I loved the fall series. I honestly adored it, especially because the Challenge Cup in many ways was a very intense experience for yes. both the teams and for way too many home. scoreless games. <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so, yeah, I thought the fall series was great. And the thought that I kept having throughout the fall series was just, you know, these teams are going to be so much better in 2021 because of this experience. You don't have this question mark around what's going to happen during the Olympics. Cause you're going to know, cause you're going to get 
those players some some good competitive experience. Um, and I, I also think, I mean, I forgive me if you guys have spoken about this on the podcast before, but I think the Challenge Cup, this 2021 Challenge Cup, as imperfect as it is, you know, I think that the weeknight games are kind of tough. There's the schedule is is not the easiest, but in many larger ways, it's kind of ingenious because it is. It's this. Um, it's hedging a bet in terms of COVID protocol where they are able to have it in home markets, but I'm sure they were prepared to try to find single side if they'd had to. And part of the reason why it had to be done when it was even going back into the beginning of this past off season, you have so many players go on loan that you have to know exactly what and when you are doing things in the following year. Cause you have to tell those players when they need to decide to come back. And so I, there were a lot of things that the league could have kind of left up in the air and lost talent or, or you had right. really struggled to get back into this conversation. And so I think that if there is one thing to take away from this challenge cup is I think the soccer games are going to be good because I think that every single team has gotten to explore its depth. Um, and I think that it was essential in terms of taking, uh, you know, this whole conversation been about momentum of the league being like, okay, we were able to do the challenge cup in 2020. It went really well. How do we make sure that all of the things people are afraid of about this upcoming offseason don't come true? And one of the main things you have to do is you have to say, okay, preseason February 1st, we're doing a tournament that can be single site, but won't necessarily have to be at the beginning of April. And then we will start the regular season in May. And that gives people time to plan for stuff. And, you know, I'm here in Chicago. Chicago is not planning on having fans for the Challenge Cup, but I do think they are planning on having fans for the regular season. And, it just, it does, it gives them something to plan around and they're working on their particular protocols and wanting everyone to feel as safe as possible. And um, I think all of that just goes a, such a long way in terms of, of having, of pulling it off and, and having people really respond to it well. Yeah, I'm I'm just really looking forward to that games. And, and I like your point about how it, it kind of, they, they were responding to the needs of the players of, you know, you can't at the last minute say, oh, we're going to do this, right? So I love that right. in November, we got the announcement from the league. All right, this is what the regular season is going to look like. We're going to do the cup beforehand. This is preseason. Yes, it seems like a ridiculously long preseason. But again, hedging your bets for COVID, also factoring in that anybody traveling for any of the FIFA windows, the one in February, also the one coming up in early April, that there's you know going to be quarantine you right. know, before and possibly after you know each, each part of that travel. So it's a different landscape, but I feel like that they're planning a little bit further ahead, right? We already know the date of the final, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, we know it's going to be on CBS. Uh, we haven't even mentioned that, that all the games for Challenge Cup will be on either CBS Sports Network, Paramount Plus, which is what CBS All Access used to be, you mm-hmm. know, um, and of course, they'll all they'll all stream live on Twitch International. So if you don't, you know, have Paramount Plus or CBS sports network you know figure out a vpn because you know i'll be calling some games on twitch but (laughs) last question for you claire um when you look at the chicago roster right now um you know tell me tell me about one or two players who you know if someone didn't know the chicago red stars other than their national teamers that you would say oh my god you need to watch this player and this is why I have to say that I am 
really looking forward to seeing how that trio of Danny Colaprico, Morgan Gatra, and Vanessa DiBernardo play this year. Um, mm-hmm. Because one of the big narratives for Chicago, and if anybody follows me, they will hear this from me probably multiple times, is they they have this conversation about the talent window that they have right now. Because they are a team that's kind of getting older in some ways. And... Um, a lot those three players are players that off and on have had injury issues um, or have just been asked to do a lot. You see injury issues maybe with one player, so a different player is asked to do a little bit too much, and then they get worn down, and it never feels like everything is clicking right at the same time. And what Chicago has done this year is they've obviously brought in Sarah Wolmo. They have Nikki Stanton back. They have a lot of players. Uh, Julie Ertz is going to be playing in the midfield for them at the at the Challenge Cup before the Olympics. That you know they've pretty much confirmed that. So they have a very very talented competitive midfield pool. Yes. And so what that gives them is the option not only to um, play their best players on any given day, but there's almost guaranteeing that they're going to have three players who are fully healthy and ready to go. And someone like Danny Colaprico, I think the world of, and I think she's been playing hurt for three years. And I just am very hopeful that she will be able to um, get good time in and benefit from the amount of years she's had in the league and have her, you know, plus those other players just take that next step into really enforcing what they want to do in the middle of the pitch, because um, that's going to be key for Chicago, because I think their biggest question mark is still their forward line. And they're just going to need that midfield to really rock out for them to, to be able to figure that out early on. And I feel like they're, they're at the final, like they're at the finish line of the post Sam Kerr transition. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. that every, and, everyone and the, they the brought in is, in 2020 and, and of course, you know, right. Rory Dames didn't get a full season to, right. you know, to, to work with that and then trading Savannah McCaskill and Yuki Nagasato, but getting Mallory Pugh and Sarah Woldmo, like I'm really looking forward to seeing what Chicago's attack can do. Yeah, I think it's going to be, they talked a lot in 2020 about wanting to develop this front six. So having a scoring midfield um, and I, this is really kind of to see if the vision, the vision plays out, the vision comes true. Yeah. Mallory Pugh is very exciting. I, the only reason I don't really know how to speak on it is because I haven't seen much of Chicago's preseason. So I don't know what the the plan is yet. I'm excited to see right. it uh, at the challenge <laughs> cup, but as of what we saw in 2020, it was this idea of free flowing where you have the wide spaces and the central spaces, having multiple players flip in and out of those areas and try to find lines even in between those areas of the pitch. And find your goals, not only coming from your forward line, but also from your midfield. And so if they can pull that off, it'll be gorgeous. I'm, I'm excited to see them try. Well, Claire, thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your thoughts on Chicago and the Challenge Cup and, of course, the new investor group. And anybody that wants to follow Claire on Twitter can do so. I'll post her handle. And, of course, you co-host the Southside Trap podcast with Sandra Herrera, all about Chicago and also the Equalizer Soccer podcast. Time for a little gensplaining. Today's topic, the 2021 Challenge Cup format and standings tiebreakers. So we have the entire schedule for the Challenge Cup now. Kicks off on Friday, April 9th. 
first game will be a rematch of last year's Challenge Cup final with Houston Dash hosting Chicago Red Stars. I've entered the entire schedule of Challenge Cup onto my Keeper Notes Woso calendar, Google Calendar. So you can find that via Google Calendar or you can go to KeeperNotes.com, click on Woso Nerd Links, and you can find the calendar there. So the way Challenge Cup will be done this time, now that we have 10 teams, they broke the teams into two groups of five teams each, loosely an East and West team, but uh, groups, but it's more like an Eastern seaboard group and everyone else. Each team will play every opponent in their group once. So each team has four games. Two of those games will be at home. Two will be away. The winner of each group will meet in the cup final on Saturday, May 8th. This game will be live on CBS. So the standings for each group to determine those winners will be determined first by points, the usual three points for a win, one point for a draw. The next tiebreaker is goal differential, then total goals, then cumulative yellow red card points, and then if necessary, a coin flip. Keep in mind, only one team advances out of the group. We won't have quarterfinals, semifinals like we had last summer. It's just going straight to a final from group play. And there will be no extra time in that final. It would go straight to penalty kicks if tied at the end of regulation. And the entire tournament will be broadcast live on CBS for the final, CBS Sports Network for a few games, the remainder Paramount Plus, which is the new streaming service that has basically, that's what CBS All Access was, now it's Paramount Plus. Also, all the games will be live on Twitch internationally. Twitch, of course, is free. Paramount Plus has two very affordable uh, price levels and still has all the games that CBS All Access showed in 2020, both for the Cup and the Universal Fall Series. Also still has all the games from the European Women's Champions League games from last August. So definitely, uh, you get a lot for your money with Paramount+. Plus. And of course, after Challenge Cup, the weekend after the Cup Final, we will have the kickoff of the 2021 NWSL regular season. Last note relating to the Challenge Cup, we do have an April FIFA window coming up. Uh, so the U.S. national team players, the Canadians, uh, any English players, I know Jess Fishlock for Wales, and I'm sure we'll have some other uh, international games announced. That first weekend of Cup and maybe into the second weekend, we won't see many national team players. Um, but, you know, the, the league knew this. This was kind of a way to deal with, hey, at least you're not losing a regular season match to to that window. So don't expect that first weekend to see any of your favorite national teamers and possibly not the second week. But of course, they are all expected to come back as soon as that FIFA window is over. All right. So hopefully you've got everything you need to plan for the Challenge Cup. I will be putting together um, a standings worksheet so that everyone can track the standings as the tournament progresses. All right, Jen Cooper, the keeper here with Jason Anderson, the managing editor of Black and Red United. And if you're not sure what that stands for, we're talking D.C. United, right? Washington, D.C., which, of course, means Washington spirit. And and Jason, what's the I, I should know, but what's the USL team there? Loudoun uh, United? 
Loudoun United. So they're they're named after Loudoun County um, out uh-huh. in Virginia. And if you're ever trying to spell their name, it's like uh, London, but with extra U's after both O's. <laughs> Don't forget the second U. A lot of people spell it loud, L-O-U-D-O-N, and it's a uh, it's a typo every time. So watch it's, out for it's that. It's loud Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if it's French or, or what its uh, roots are at all. That's a. I'm in Maryland. That's a Virginia problem. I, I I'm not going to tell them <laughs> their business. Problem. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Well, and of course, uh, Washington Spirit are going to play their Challenge Cup games at the home of Loudon United. <laughs> Loudon United. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about that that first, and then we'll get into uh, also the story of you know Washington Spirit adding uh, a lot of investors to their investor group. So we've got the Challenge Cup schedule. Um, it's it's so exciting that it's happening for a second time. Mm-hmm. Washington in a, in a different group setting than we had for fall series. And of course, during challenge cup last year, we didn't really have groups, right? You, you, right. you had your four games, but it was a single table. So here we actually have groups. What do you think about th- this grouping? Uh, I'm, I think it's pretty fascinating. It's um, it's an interesting balance of some teams that the spirit are very familiar with. They seems like they're destined to play sky blue, four to five times every single year forever, no matter <laughs> Definitely. no matter what happens, they'll always play sky blue several times. Um, they're going to be playing sky blue in the preseason as well uh, at Audi field, uh, which is pretty exciting. But yeah, the spirit sky blue is just like a part of my life. It's like a once a month thing in, in once the NWSL starts playing, it's just going to happen. Um, but the spirit also played uh, they outside of the fall series last year, they set up their own, uh, match with the courage down in Cary. It was closed door, so I don't really know much about what happened. It was apparently quite a game. It was four three courage in the end. Um, nice. But that's a that's another really familiar uh, meeting. And I know, you know, with how close Richie uh, Burke and Paul Riley are, and I, I think the spirit kind of have long seen the courage as like if we can be better than the courage, we're probably going to be uh, winning something. Um, so they're kind of a benchmark for the club, uh, as an organization. So I think that's going to be internally for them. I think that's going to be a very big game. Um, Orlando and, and, uh, Louisville, those are interesting, uh, teams because there's so much change there. Um, you know, Louisville, obviously it's an expansion team, so it's all brand new. Um, though there are several, uh, ex spirit players there. And now, now that I'm saying that I'm realizing that also with, uh, Orlando, Orlando used to be the team that had all of the ex spirit players. And now they're getting back (laughs) to it with, um, Maggie Doherty Howard and Crystal Thomas are both there, um, to go with some of the players that uh, are a little more, uh, removed from their, their spirit days. Um, but yeah, those are two teams that have changed a lot and maybe, you know, expectation wise, you would say the spirit are trying to be a team that, that are, they expect themselves to be in the playoffs and contending and, and Orlando and Louisville might not be there yet, but um, at the same time for those teams, that means this is a, you know, a chance to prove that they're not just making up the numbers. They're not just in the process of finding themselves. They actually have a shot at doing more. So um, I think it's kind of a, it's a fascinating group um, to be in and, and, I will say also that um, it is kind of funny to me to think of this as the East group when the West group covers like two thirds of the land mass of the country um, <laughs> and, and everyone else, you know, sky blue and, and North Carolina are two of the shortest trips anyone in the league has. Whereas, uh, you know, Houston has to, I, I, 
I can't remember if Houston has to go to Tacoma or Portland, but either way, that's a longer, a much longer trip. Yeah. Yeah. So we should probably call it Eastern Seaboard Group and Other Group. <laughs> Atlantic Coast Group. And then, or I guess Louisville's kind of throwing that off. Um, yeah. I don't know. The geography yeah. doesn't, it doesn't make for convenient names. Right. And and I do like that they kept Louisville and Kansas City in separate groups, even though Kansas City is not like that group of players isn't necessarily mm-hmm. a new team, right? Because it because it, it right. is very much the 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 core of of Utah Royals. But it is it, it, it's a new entity. It's a new coach. There's a lot of changes. You know, it's a last minute move. So I kind of like that those two teams get to be separated, and and I mm-hmm. like that everybody gets some slightly different opponents than what they had in the fall series, right? Like North Carolina will play Orlando again, but they won't play Houston. Right. You know, Washington will play sky blue again, but they won't play Chicago. So at least Mm -hmm. it's a little bit of a mix. So both those home games for Washington will be at at Segra field. And we saw them play there in the, in the fall series. Um, But it it sounds like that they will have games again at at Audi field uh, in the future. Yeah, they, they've uh, set up uh, – they haven't officially announced it, but um, uh, Richie in his last conference call kind of uh, kind of, kind of of let us know that this was, this was coming down the, the, the pike, so to speak, um, that they're going to have a game at Audi Field uh, to, to finish their preseason slate against Sky Blue. And that, that one won't have fans, but it will be um, – it will be a, a real game at the stadium, which I think is a good it's a good start for them to get back to being in the district in some kind of way. Because I know, right. you know, the, as the team has said over and over again, they really want to be playing at Audi Field all the time because you can you can get a huge crowd there if you're getting uh, you know, I think their smallest crowd. Um, well, I, I, I was about to say was still in like 17, but I forgot that they did play there in uh, 2018, but that, that, that season was going so badly that I kind of forget uh, (laughs) that it happened. Um, But even that, even that game, they managed to get almost 9,000 people there. So um, almost 8,000. So um, getting into the district is a big deal for them. And, and, you know, it's also, it's a grass playing surface. Uh, Segra is turf and it's, it's new turf. So um, I remember uh, Richie saying that he felt like the players in his opinion, at least they get a little more tired out on a turf surface that hasn't been worn in a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. And the ball takes some, some bounces. It wouldn't on a turf surface. That's, that's gotten a little more uh, use. And, you know, this stadium only, only opened mid 2019. And then last year, uh, Loudon barely had any games there. The USL season was very uh, shortened and compressed. The Spirit only played there two times. I think DC's academy teams have played a bunch there, so maybe now it's gotten a little more use and, and the field will play more like a normal turf, but it's still turf, so it's still not really everyone's favorite. Um, and it, it did seem, I remember that that first fall series game there, that it, it, it kind of seemed like a really thick carpet. Right. Yeah. And, and that and that that goes to what you're saying about not being worn down. And sure, turf isn't preferable, but I always like to remind people that there's so many different kinds of turf. Mm-hmm. Right. So so don't automatically go, oh, I'm oh, my God, I can't believe they're playing on turf. Just, you know, just go, hey, 
is it the best turf available? Because, right. you know, Portland Thorns, they've been playing on turf all this time. Yes, grass, grass would be preferable. But I, I've played on grass fields that are so horrible and so dried and mm -hmm. felt like concrete that you're like, okay, I'd rather have oh yeah turf right yeah. um yeah and, <laughs> and, and now I there's think, even like turf grass hybrids and stuff oh yeah uh and, and i know i think i want to say i think back to when the team announced that they would be playing um back before covid they did an announcement saying that their 2020 schedule would feature four games at the plex four at cedra right. four at audi field and i i got to talk to tori houster before the before everyone went home and she mentioned that Yes, it's turf, but, um, you know, making kind of the same point that there are different qualities of turf and a very good turf surface. And, and by, I, I don't know the specifics of what this surface is at Segro, but I haven't heard any complaints from talking to people at Loudoun United. So it's not, you know, they didn't buy the 1980s AstroTurf and, and set it up. Right. It's, it's right. Uh, it seems like a good surface. Like I, I, I don't, if you watch enough soccer in the U.S., you see games, and I'm thinking of maybe some MLS games in New England, for example, where I would refer to it as a turf game. The ball is sort of pinging all over the place, and the game is kind of hectic and ragged and not very aesthetically. It's A lot happens, but it's not very fun to watch. It's kind of a silly mm -hmm. game rather than a fun game. And that hasn't happened at Segra, in my opinion. So, um I think as far as being stuck on a turf surface, it's not the worst outcome in the world. It, it's obviously it would be better to be at Audi Field full time. Um, but, you know, the, the difficulties of renting Audi Field, paying for all the things you have to pay for to get that place open uh, in terms Especially of. Especially if you're not going to have not going to be able to fill it up because of right. COVID restrictions. It doesn't doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a really it's a really expensive place to rent out if you're not able to open most of the venue up. And right now uh, the district uh, health department isn't allowed. I mean, they aren't even allowing the Washington nationals to have fans um, mm -hmm. in the short term. So for the time being, I, I think Audi fields probably a couple of months away, but you know, fortunately in DC, the, um, the vaccination program has gone fairly well. Uh, the, positivity rates are fairly low. So um, they're moving in the direction where I think hopefully fans will start to be allowed in in limited numbers. Uh, and then after that, um, you know, maybe we get into the summertime and it becomes possible to actually open the place up. Cause I know people, the spirit are dying to sell that place out again. And I, right. you know, their track record points to them being able to sell it out pretty consistently. So um the sooner we get there, the better for sure. Well, let's talk about uh, the new investors uh, behind the Washington spirit, uh, you know, kind of following the lead of Angel City, bringing in a huge investor group. I mean, I'm sure some of these discussions probably predate that. But but I love to see that more people are are kind of, you know, putting their money where their soccer is, especially locally and mm -hmm. and supporting women's sports, not in the I'm just going to tweet about it away. But like I said, putting their money where the soccer is, that's a whole different level investment. And of course, you know, some familiar names like, of course, Brianna Scurry, right? Um, mm -hmm. I love that we have two different first daughters. We've got Chelsea Clinton and, and Jenna Bush Hager. Of course, I don't know a lot of the other names. So what can you tell me about about some of these investors and just what you know, what do you think this is going to do for the club long term? 
Uh, it's it's a really it's an interesting uh, slice of you know when you you mentioned Angel City and we think of you know Natalie Portman is on that ownership group um, and there are a lot of people in tech coming from Silicon Valley that are in that ownership group and the DC version of that is people in government um, and that is a chunk of the ownership. group. Group. You know, former Senator Tom Daschle is part of that uh, group of investors. Uh, and in fact, according to Richie Burke, uh, he was saying that um, he he might be involved in trying to uh, figure out why Julia Rodar's uh, visa has taken so long, um, because I think the real answer there is just that they, things are very chaotic uh, in terms of um, a lot of government offices uh, <laughs> in in. Uh, you know, the transition over to the Biden administration. Right. And so there's a lot of people, a lot of people picking up the pieces um, and trying to put things back together again. So um, things have been very slow uh, on that front. And so having that kind of connection uh, in DC goes extremely, extremely far. Um, when it's a former Senator calling, it's a big difference. Um, and, and, you know, there are, uh, there's an ex ambassador, uh, an ex U.S. ambassador is in this ownership group. Um, uh, I, I'm I'm trying to turn, remember off the top of my head while the list of names loads um, because my computer is running slowly just when I need it to not run slowly. Um, uh, Asia Graziola Vernier is a um, board member at Juventus who happens to be, I think she has uh, some business in D.C. so that you've got international soccer connecting because dc is a global city and, oh i love um, that these these connections are really important um you know being able to access the sort of the levers of power so to speak uh more directly is such a big deal and and it's it's a lot different than um the ownership we've seen not just in in the league but you know around dc usually um the teams are owned by business uh, types in DC. And this is now most of the people on this list are t- people in DC businesses. Um, I, uh-huh. I got to speak to um, Bryce Scurry and, and you know, one of the things that um, Steve Baldwin had brought up was that uh, owners were expected to lend their expertise, not just their money, but their time and their expertise, their connections, their networks, all this stuff. And when I asked Bryce Curry about that, about uh, what she was looking to do um, on her side of that, she very quickly brought up that um, the, you know, the PR contact for a lot of this stuff has been someone that works for her wife's uh, PR company. She founded a PR firm uh, in DC. So this is another one of those things where Right. So so even that side of it, like they are actually helping, um, you know, the, the rollout of the news from this and getting contacts for these interviews. So um, on all kinds of fronts, um, you know, Dominique Dawes, uh, you know, a legend in women's gymnastics, a gold medal winner yes. is part of the ownership group. So and, and she's she's maybe unique in this ownership group because she's actually in you know she made her name as an athlete she is not her her and bri i should say are unique um in the group because of their their success uh winning gold medals winning championships as athletes um and i I think that diversity in the ownership group is really important um and and i will say everything's still very new in, in a lot of cases um 
I spoke with Sam Staub for uh, my spirit podcast, and she mentioned that, you know, a lot of this is so new to the players that they haven't really had much time to touch base with a lot of the owners uh, coming in because it, a lot of this happened pretty quickly. Um, I, th- I think following the much like the other large ownership groups, you know, following the 2019 World Cup and the social impact of Time's Up, people started paying more attention. And 2020, there's kind of, you know, you couldn't have these sort of interpersonal meetings or, or uh, casual dinners or whatever that sort of are the signal that something's moving in a certain direction. Um, so a lot of these things, it's, it, you know, my speculation, but it seems like a lot of these things happened via Zoom or via phone calls or emails or whatever. And so um, we're still very early in terms of the impact from this, but I think it's it kind of connects to a theme that has been in place since uh, Baldwin first bought in, which is that um, he wants the players to have access to not just the best for the soccer side of things, but he also wants to set them up with, uh, you know, networking opportunities and things like that. So that when they are done playing, they have something else they can go do. Um, I, I still remember that in uh, I want to say during 2019, the team had a little, like a little luncheon or something on Capitol Hill that the players were, you know, asked to like, Hey, you know, dress up uh, for business professional. This is kind of a, a thing. And the players are like, what is this? I don't know what's going on here exactly. And they're like, this is a networking thing. You're, you're networking with people in power. And they were meeting with like people that like members of con- like current members of Congress, business leaders, et cetera. Um, And it's one of these things where it's, you know, the players are now getting these connections that can set themselves up so that, you know, if something happens, if your career is shorter than expected, or if you're already, you know, 30, 31, and you've got to start planning for five years down the road, um, you have someone you can call. It's not just like, okay, well, let me go dust off my diploma that I got eight years ago and figure out what I can do. Um, You know, that that next step uh, is a lot easier to make when you're not stepping off the playing field and saying like, uh, okay, well, what is it that I'm going to do with the rest of my life? And not everybody wants to go into coaching. Right. Right. Like, like that's, you you see a lot of players do that, but not everybody wants to, not everybody is, is going to be a natural for that. mm -hmm. Um, And there are so many opportunities in sports beyond coaching, beyond playing, you know, whether it's, you know, operations, sales, sponsorships, communication, you know, TV, there's there so many things. And so that's, that's another great example of how a club can, you know, make things better for the players, like, in, in a way that helps everybody at the club, right? They're bringing mm-hmm. in these resources to help the club. And by extension, it helps the players, right? So, oh, yeah. so you're just kind of reinforcing that, you know, the, the club is a great destination. And this is like the you know, the next evolution of, of the Washington spirit ownership, you know, we saw, when is it that Baldwin came in and, and became majority owner? Was that two, three seasons uh, ago? Yeah. It was in the off season between 2018 and 2019. Yeah. So it's nice to see these clubs, the ownerships evolving and not necessarily the situation where, okay, this club is saying we can't grow anymore, so we have to fold or somebody has to buy us, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, no, this, everyone is, is committed and they're just finding more people to 
you know, to, to support the club, to be resources, to add capital, et cetera, you know, um, it, you know, doubling down on, on yeah. committing to, to soccer in, in, in DC. And it just, I, I think it's very, uh, it's just very reaffirming, especially in, in such a strange, <laughs> chaotic time we've had in, yeah. in the last year. Right. I, um, yeah. When you think of, the fact that the league seems on more stable footing uh, coming out of COVID, you know, if you told me this time last year, I mean, literally we're speaking on March 10th and I think it was March 11th was the day where everyone uh, sort of collectively realized that things are about to get very bad very quickly. Um, if you told me like 11 months ago uh, that NWSL would not just be getting through the whole thing, but actually coming through with, uh, you know, multiple stronger ownership groups, um, you know, bigger rosters, more money available for paying players and setting them up with um, year round housing, all this other stuff. Um, yeah. It's, it's a pretty remarkable thing that, that we're coming out of, you know, we're still not out of it, but we're getting close to the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's not like, okay, how do we rebuild what fell apart in the last year? It's actually like, no, the league kept growing, um, which is yes. you know, pretty amazing. Cause you know, Women's soccer. And a lot of it was behind the scenes, right? Mm -hmm. But it, but mm -hmm. it's still all worth talking about. Like you mentioned, the housing. It sounds like the smallest thing, but that's so huge when you think about that. You know, for every club's players, and that's you know twenty to twenty six players per per team, they don't have to move out at the end of the season and find somewhere else to live, and then move back four or five months later, right? They know they've got year round housing if they need it, the, mm -hmm. the schedule has extended enough that we're basically not going to see any more NWSL players in Australia. Right. right. You've got one right now in W league, you've got Mallory Weber. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's really only because, because of how, you know, the, the 2020 season ended up right with, you know, being just challenge cup and, and fall series. Right. We're not going to see that anymore, which means you don't have again, you don't have that like emotional stress and just the the, the travel and, and wear down of like, OK, I've got one season here and then another season here. And, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I'm just actually with this club the whole time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I bring this up again. I, I mentioned that the when the team did their um, announcement of having three venues back, uh, I guess it was November 2019, I want to say it was very, I, I don't remember the exact date. I remember it being very, very cold. Um, it was a, it was a un, unreasonably cold day, but uh, I also talked to Paige Nielsen that day. She was actually, she had stayed in the region after the season was over and had come out to just sort of be at the press conference. She wasn't there because the team said, Hey, we want a player there. She just decided to drive out and be around. Um, and one thing she mentioned was that, um, you know, in her past, she's her history as a player is lots of globe trotting involved. She's played in multiple countries in multiple uh, continents, um, and having a place where she was still in the area because she could. It wasn't like okay, the season's over. We don't have the money to keep your power on at the apartment we set you up with. You got to go. Um, instead, it was like, yeah, you can stay around here. You can train locally. You can. Uh, you know, if you're looking to get into coaching, you can start to coach uh, youth players in the area over longer than just a handful of months. If you're looking to get into uh, business stuff, you can find companies and start actually 
making your connections with them early. It's not a thing where you're like, well, it's been great for the six months that I was here, but now I got to go to wherever. Um, and she talked about how important that was to her. And that's, you know, that's come up, I think, a few times when I've talked to her that she's really starting to turn this area into I don't want to put words in her mouth, but it seems like she's putting uh, roots down and turning this into home. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing that only happens once you start providing players with the kind of stability where they can even consider that an option, which it wasn't very long ago where, you know, players just simply did not have that choice available to them. So it's uh, honestly, to me, it might be the single biggest thing in the league is that every single team has that set up now where yes, every player has that stability and they can actually be at their best during the year. Cause they don't have to worry, you know, come August, you're already having to think like, well, where am I going to live in November? What am I going right. to do with right. my stuff? How am I going to get it into my car? Do I have to just throw out some things because I can't move them? <laughs> Who's going to help me pay for moving? Yeah. Right. Um, the, the I nightmare the first season of the dash, mm-hmm. um, in one of the dynamo charities board members, he wanted to, like throw an end of the season pool party for the dash players, just as Mm -hmm. a, you know, a nice gesture. And he was stunned to learn like, no, they're all leaving the morning after the final game. Yeah. Like, which is because they're, they're going to play elsewhere or they're moving out of the housing or they have jobs at at colleges. Right. Because that's when the season was still ending before the end of August. He's like, Mm -hmm. what? It's like, yeah, that's, that's where we are. Yeah. And can you imagine facing like, let's say, you know, that specific season, let's say the dash had to win that last game of the year to get into the playoffs. Um, Can you imagine playing, trying to play that, that game, knowing that like in the five days before that game, every day after training, you had to come home and pack boxes and load up a moving truck. And then also knowing that you might have to, if you win that game and make the playoffs, then you have to unload your truck because you're staying in town for another two weeks. Um, You know, how are you, how are you, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's funny, but it's also like, how are these players supposed to be at their best for these important games? If that's the circumstance they have to live in. So um, I, I think we're going to see the quality in the league go up because this stability allows players to actually focus on the thing that they are here to do. Um, which sounds like a very basic thing, but it's, you know, it's as important as anything going on with the league. Well, and especially coming off of, you know, one of the most bizarre chaotic seasons in, in the history of sports and any sport um, to see that we've lost so few players uh, mm-hmm. and, and by lost, I mean to retirement, right? Obviously you have p- players, we've had some players transfer to Europe. That's a different opportunity kind of thing, right? That's, that's also, you know, chasing some money. Mm-hmm. But what I think about when we've had upheavals in NWSL, especially with um, teams moving teams, folding um, or people getting picked in an expansion draft, you'll see some young retirements where it's like, no, mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. Or I've, I've done this enough. We're not seeing that. Like I, I love seeing that, you know, the entire roster from from Utah said, "Yeah, I'll 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 go to Can- I'll go back to Kansas City and give it a, give it a try." We've even seen some players come out of retirement. Erica sure. Timrak, mm-hmm. um, Orlando, uh, um, Sydney Miramontes with KC. You know, it, it's like that speaks volumes 
Oh, yeah. You know, and, and to me, that that really bodes well for the future, because one discussion in the past, um, uh, anytime we talk about expansion, is I've heard some people say it's like, well, is our is our player quality deep enough that we can add two more teams and it won't affect the playing level of the, of the league? And to me that um, all these players are staying around. Right. Mm-hmm. Um and we kind of had like a del- like we didn't get to see a lot of rookies in 2020. We probably won't see a lot in 2021 because because of the ones that chose to you know stay stay in college. So mm-hmm. I, I feel that we are kind of like banking a lot of talent. So yeah. 2022 for LA and and possibly Sacramento, it's like there's there's going to be a lot of talented players and and I think as much as we're hearing oh my god you know the WSL in in England is the best place to be you know we know that all these players talk to each other I'm sure you're getting information the other way going wow NWSL is not the NWSL that it was five years ago right yeah so I think there's more European players that are like hey I want to check this out yeah I mean this is a perfect example with um I mentioned Julia Radar um and my understanding is that to at least some level, uh, I don't know, I don't want to overstate it, but I know that um, I've been told that Emily Sonnet kind of sold her a little bit. She's like, yeah, I think you're good enough to come play here and I think you would enjoy it. Um, I think the change in the way things are run, um, you know, you don't have to worry about showing up and finding uh, some of these horror stories that used to be come up in the past right. where players had right. you know the, the sky blue they, they will ease your entry into the US yes right and so and getting you know medal, joining the team and, and you know what she's walking into and, and you know in Europe a lot of clubs maybe the money isn't isn't uh very impressive a lot of outside of England um but but usually the teams provide an apartment uh, a car things like that and what right. she's going to walk into once she finally gets to um gets to the area and starts to settle in with the team is going to be the spirit uh, players are all living in a brand new development. One of their sponsors, one of their many, many sponsors is a uh, real estate uh, developer that has a small development of um, uh, these like row homes out in Loudoun County. So most of the players appear to be living out. I'm not, I'm not sure where it is, but it's out. They're all kind of in the same little area. Um, so they're all set up in not like a dormitory style apartment, but like a real, you know, row home, home. that has a home yeah, um, with a garage and stuff like that. So she's going to find that situation uh, when she gets here and she's going to find uh, training facilities that are up to standard uh, for a European club that spirit will be once DC United finishes construction of their training facility, which is right next to Segra field, the spirit will be training there as well, which is going to have not just the training ground, but the weight room, hydrotherapy, all the post training stuff. It's not going to be doing ice baths in storage bins anymore. It's going to (laughs) be the the real high end stuff. Um, And so for the for the players, like this is a huge part of the sales job of how do you get a player from Sweden's national team to want to leave the Swedish league and come over here? And it's like, well, you show them that this is the life they're going to be having. It's not going to be coming over here. And the soccer side is better than what they're used to. But the off field life is r- really roughing it. Um, that's not the case right. anymore. And so, um, yeah, I, I do think that 
a lot of players in a lot of leagues over there are going to start to hear back from player. You know, there's a reason I I don't think it's coincidental that the spirit managed to sign a second player from Japan as well, because Kumi Yokoyama could now tell her international teammates, like things are pretty good. Um, This is not a bad setup. So um, yeah. And that's, that's, that's just the spirit. Every team has that. Every team has a player that plays, for another national team that can, when they go abroad, they're telling them, they're telling their teammates, like things are pretty good. It's, it's a sweet life. Uh, it's not what it used to be. You should consider if, if a team is interested in you, you should really give it consideration. And I think we're going to see that quite a bit. Yeah. It, it, it speaks volumes that Sayori Takarada signed with the spirit. I mean, I read mm-hmm. that immediately, like you said, or it's like, okay, Kumi Yokoyama must have said about the spirit. Well, last mm-hmm. question for you, Jason, um, you know, of the, the current spirit roster, you know, who, who do you think fans need to know about that they don't already know about? Like if, if it's, it's a new, you know, person going to a Washington, Washington spirit game for the first time. And sure, they know who Aubrey Bledsoe is and, mm-hmm. and they know Andy Sullivan and they've probably heard Kelly O'Hare and Emily Sonnet. What other name are you going to say to them? It's like, you really need to watch this player. Uh, well, I, I already mentioned Sam Staub, um, and I, I feel like people should be paying more attention to her. But but since I already mentioned her, um, I, I'm kind of taking two by doing that. Um, but I, I'm going to mention uh, <laughs> Bailey Feist, um, who maybe people uh-huh. that watched the Challenge Cup last year started to notice that um, she rapidly went from a player that Richie Burke loves to put into games as a, as a sub to being a player where he couldn't really justify keeping her off the field. Um, and right. she was very quickly, um, she very quickly established herself in the, the challenge cup as a starter and remained a starter during the fall series. Um, she, uh, I, I'm trying to think of, um, I, I think in their first preseason game uh, down in Florida against Palm beach, Atlantic uh, university, she started in that game, uh, got on the score sheet, um, and I think she's just, she's a fun player to watch. She's all action. So she's always in the thick of everything. Um, whether that's in the possession side being, you know, available as an option, moving the ball forward, not just passing side to side. Um, she loves to get stuck in. So, uh, she's always making tackles. Um, but she's also, she's got a, a, a little cleverness around goal that I think, um, there was a I'm trying to remember if it was her first or second pro goal that she scored with like the ball was running between her feet and she did a quick back heel to fool the goalkeeper. Um, she's she's just one of those play. And apparently that's like a common thing that the spirit mentioned in training is that um, it, when it comes to the clever or acrobatic or unexpected finish, um, she's one of the most uh, regular contributors on that that side of things. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to. Um, I'm saying Bailey Feist is my long answer, but my short answer is her and Sam Staub both need to um, get on some radars for, for fans nationally because they're just, they're really exciting players to watch. It's a, it's a, it's a very interesting thing for the spirit to have acquired those two and Dorian Bailey and Jordan DiBiase all in one draft um, is pretty wild. Well, and even this past draft, they picked up some great gets, right? Yeah. Like Washington's just been killing the draft. I mean, Trinity Rodman, who's ready to play, you know, mm-hmm. picking up Sidney Schneider to to back up Aubrey Bledsoe. You know, it's like, wow, there's some, yeah, they, some, some good they, picks. They're, they're really, um, 
they're really excited about becoming a team that it gets, I, I think they want to really make that part of their reputation as a club where if you're a rookie, um, if you come in and are playing at the level of the starters, you're going to get on the field and it's not going to be a thing like, well, she played well uh, in this one start, but she's still a rookie. So we'll maybe be hesitant about it. Um, you know, Richie Burke is building uh, an attack in part around Ashley Sanchez. Um, for example, um, Trinity Rodman, I, I am sure is going to see lots of playing time, um, this season. He's not going to hesitate to put her in games. Um, I've heard from a couple players now that, uh, Anna Helferty, their second round pick, um, has been very impressive in training. Uh, she didn't get a lot of attention on draft day, but, um, she's a player that trained with the team, uh, last summer. Um, and that's actually how she impressed the staff enough that they were looking to draft her. Um, back in January. And the the one remark that stuck with me was that apparently, you know, that the team's leadership trio, um, Sullivan, Houston, and Bledsoe, they all said like, yeah, she's really good. Like she can f- hang in our training sessions without any problem. Um, and when you're getting the sign off on them that you can come to the training session and not slow things down or um, be clearly the worst player, if they're saying like, yeah, she fits right in with the rest of the group, then um, that's a pretty impressive achievement. Um, so yeah, those young players, they aren't just here to fill out the bottom of the roster. Richie is going to put them in games. Um, they're going to get their their opportunities for sure. I'm not sure exactly, you know, with Rodman especially, you know, most of her, most of her youth national team play has been as a wide forward. Um, this first mm-hmm. preseason game, she played center forward as the nine in a front three in part, in part because Avery Collins has a torn ACL and the spirit are kind of trying to figure out, I, I think they have another signing up their sleeves. Um, their one draft pick who didn't report Tara McCune is still playing for USC. She would have been, I think the straightforward answer to who is Ashley Hatch's backup. Um, once Collins got hurt, it would have been very, you know, you just put her in and that's that, but she's still with USC for the time being. So um that center forward question mark might have actually opened up some opportunities for um, maybe now Rodman plays centrally, which means uh, Halfordy comes in on the wing. Um, Mariana Speckmeyer from Clemson can play anywhere up front. So now she's got an avenue towards more minutes. And uh, Richie is probably going to give them all their shot. Um, this is not a team where the young players show up and then they you never see them again. This is a team where they put them out there and they expect them to do well. And so far the track record, uh, under, uh, since Burke became the coach in 2019, the track record is that those young players get better very quickly and they become contributors very quickly. That's definitely what we've seen. Well, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about challenge cup, Segrafield, turf, new investors, great players on the spirit roster. Definitely looking forward to seeing uh, what Richie Burke does in, in year three with Washington spirit. Yeah. Uh, it, it should be an exciting season. I'm, I'm glad to join the show when it, whenever you're looking for me to come on. time to wrap it up with the back four uh don't forget i have the entire challenge cup schedule on my keeper notes woso google calendar you can search for that via google calendar or you can go to keepernotes.com click on woso nerd links and you can find the calendar there 
Challenge Cup kicks off Friday, April 9th. The final will be a month later, Saturday, May 8th, live on CBS. All the games will be broadcast somewhere in the world. Um, so you should be able to watch every single game. And a week after the Challenge Cup final, we have the kickoff of the 2021 regular season schedule. And of course, prepare for Challenge Cup in the 2021 season. You need to get yourself a copy of the 2020 NWSL Almanac, published by, of course, Keeper Notes. More than 370 pages of comprehensive statistics, game notes for every season of NWSL, including last year's Challenge Cup and Fall Series. You can buy it in print, you can buy it in PDF, you can even buy both for a discounted price. So just head to KeeperNotes.com and click on NWSL Almanacs. I'm also working on an Olympic women's soccer almanac to be released this summer. And we have uh, an April FIFA international window coming up. U.S. women will be heading to Europe. They have a game against Sweden, and they're looking to get one other game while they're over there. England's going to play Canada. Canada's also going to play Wales while they're over there. Um, More matches will be announced, of course, you know, travel between certain countries it's still all very complicated and convoluted due to covid Uh, but any any game that i'm hearing about i am plugging into that keeper notes woso google calendar as well last but not least if you want to watch more soccer but maybe it's not live soccer maybe it's not new soccer uh, my woso nostalgia youtube channel uh, finding a lot of old videos and i'm putting them up there Um, If you have any questions about those videos, let me know. But more importantly, if you have any old women's soccer videos, especially something on VHS, um, if you send it to me, I will convert it to digital for you. And then I will also post it onto YouTube. But if you have any old videos, WSA, WPS, US National Team, any old stuff, um, send me an email, keeper at keepernotes.com. All right, that's it for this episode of the Mixed Zone Women's Soccer Podcast. I want to thank everyone for listening, anyone who likes, subscribes, tweets, shares, sends a comment, etc. All good stuff. Keep doing it. And want to thank, of course, my producer, Sean Ringrose, whose podcast you can check out at anchor.fm slash Jen Orange. It's a great Houston Dynamo, Houston Dash podcast. And that is Jen Orange as in Generation Orange. So it's G-E-N Orange. Last but not least, want to thank the Beautiful Game Network for making this all possible. But now she's anybody's girl.